Hi, I'm Mecky. And I'm Tammy. And we're the hosts of Food with Politics. Yep, where Tam and I talk food, quick and easy recipes we love. And politics, current events, and issues affecting our lives. We're back. We're back. Another week, another show. Another week, another show. So what's going on, girl? How was your weekend? Or your week? Or your day? (laughs) (laughs) My weekend was pretty good. So there's this group of women that I walk with a couple of times a week. You know about these ladies, right, uh, Mexter? Very familiar. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So last night we had a potluck dinner. And one of the ladies from the walking group, she made this summer squash ricotta pizzas. Mm, They have, yeah, sun-dried tomatoes and um, basil on them. Girl, they are so good. Really good. Like, I feel like you can't go wrong with basil and sun-dried tomatoes, just on the strength of anything. And then ricotta. Mm. Yeah. And it was on like a pita bread. It was so good. Oh, I under pizza, like pitas. <laughs> yeah, like pita, but pizzas. <laughs> they were so good that the host of the potluck told Amanda that she better wash the dish that she brought the pizzas on because she was keeping all the leftovers. Her and her husband were <laughs> going to go ahead and eat all of them. So <laughs> I'm going to put that recipe on Instagram because I actually underestimated them when she first told us about it, but they're really, really good. Did she say they were easy to make? Very easy to make. And I just wanted to give like a quick shout out for her. Her name is Amanda Crabtree. She made the pizzas. Amanda is a wedding planner and she just ventured out on her own, just like us. Yay. Yeah. Wow. And then, yeah, the name of her company is Spark and Sage Events. And I actually know her personally. She's really good at what she does. She actually helped me when my wedding planner wasn't always there. Oh my God. We talked about this, I think, on our first episode and people still ask me about that story. So I feel like we might have to dedicate a whole show <laughs> I think that we'll, well, one of these days we're going to have a mailbag show. So maybe we can talk about that. We'll revisit that and I'll, I'll tell the whole story. But her website is sparkandsage.com. So if you are planning a wedding after this pandemic or even during this pandemic, she can help you out. Oh, that's so cool. We'll put her website on our Instagram page as well. Definitely. So how was your weekend, Meg? What did you and the fam do? So our weekend was good, Tam. No complaints. We were back out east in the Hamptons at our some of our friends' house. They invite us up often. And we just sort of, you know, we stayed inside indoors and they have a beautiful backyard and nice big house. So we weren't on top of each other like we are here in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, and we just watched the movies with the kids. And it was funny. We actually watched. It was so hilarious. We thought about it and we we're like, this is appropriate. We can do this. And maybe it wasn't, but it was funny. It was, you know, all the dad, the, our husbands, the kids and me and my friend. We watched Bridesmaids. The oh, with the kids? Yeah, and it was so funny to watch how delightful it was. They were all cracking up because people always tend to think it's, you know, girl flick or whatever they call it, right? Yeah, Scott thought that because I keep trying to get Scott to watch it and I love that movie because it, so it totally reminds me of our relationship. <laughs> I know, I know. And it was, that's what I was telling the kids and they just couldn't understand. They're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, sometimes adults act like children. Like they feel like their best friend's gone on and met somebody else and then you act like a jerk. You know, you act like a jerk. So. <laughs> Um, it was really funny, but like the funniest thing was watching Skindu laugh so hard at parts of it. It was really cute. And um, yeah, it, was funny. it was really funny. So that's all. We didn't do much. I'm actually looking forward to being in Brooklyn for a weekend because I feel like we've been kind of on the move for the past, we've only been here, what, two months now. And we're rarely ever in Brooklyn. So that's good. We had a great time. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome to my world. This is this is uh, Scott and Tammy chilling, watching movies. <laughs> so right. should we get into our topic today? 
Yeah, basically, I mean, we've been talking about food and that's kind of where our topic is going to go. Yeah, you're right. It's all about food deserts. And it's funny, this topic was actually inspired by an article that I read online on Vice. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Vice. The article was called Black Girls in Trader Joe's is Shedding Light on Food's Inequality Problem. The article was, as the title suggests, about Black women who love to cook and share recipes and ideas and they're fans of Trader Joe's. So these two particular women connected on social media and both realized that one, they would rarely if ever see any brown hands on pictures featured on any of the Trader Joe's affinity group Instagram accounts. And two, when they take the time to submit photos, they were all staged beautifully with legit recipes. Mm -hmm. They never got any love. So they got together and created a page specifically for black girls. And having started that not too long ago, as of now, the black girls and Trader Joe's Instagram page has over 300,000 followers. Wow. Yeah, right. They're on, you know, they're onto something. Right. Yeah, super dope. And while I can go on and on about how amazing the creators of the Black Girls at Trader Joe's Instagram page are, what I really wanted us to talk about today is the food inequality problem that the article brings up, and particularly what Mercedes Davis, better known as D by her followers, is quoted as saying. So let me just read this for y'all. Quote, food is political. It reflects where you live and your socioeconomic status. When I think of grocery stores, I think of access. When you look at education, do we have access to the same quality of education? Depending on your tax bracket, you're going to have a better school system. The same thing goes with food. Not having access to certain grocery stores is what deters people, end quote. So D is essentially describing food deserts. Right. So Tam, what's a food desert? Well, a food desert is a term derived from the United States Department of Agriculture. It factors in a neighbor's income level, access to transportation, and if you live more than a mile from a grocery store. A corner store where fresh food items aren't available is not considered a grocery store. A grocery store is a store that has an income of at least $2 million a year. Wow, I had no idea about the money part. Yeah, and an interesting fact, Mac, is according to the National Academy of Sciences, areas without a grocery store have increased cases of obesity and chronic diseases. The crazy thing is about one in 10 Americans do not have access to grocery stores that sell fresh food. Damn, son, that's messed up. How does that even happen? Like 2020, it seems like, right? yeah, it should be everyone's right to have fresh fruit and vegetables available. And it's crazy because I really take it for granted that I live within walking distance to at least five grocery stores. You know me in the Park Slope Food Co-op girl. <laughs> girl, yeah. I was mad that I didn't join the co-op before I moved back to Cali. I'm telling you, it's having kids that made me join it, really. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Myself included, I can walk to one, two, I think three grocery stores right by my house. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I was I was reading the Vice article you sent. And while I was reading it, this video popped up about farming and food inequalities. The title of the video was Soul Fire Farm is Committed to Ending Racism and Food Inequality. So obviously I clicked on it. <laughs> and what I learned amongst many other things was that Soul Fire Farm is a BIPOC-centered community farm. BIPOC meaning it serves Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And they do everything from teaching BIPOC to farm and delivering fresh food to underserved communities. It's really awesome. Actually, I'm going to play the soundbite for you from the co-founder, Leah Pinneman. My partner Jonah and I were living in the south end of Albany, New York with our then infant children, Nishima and Emmett. And despite our master's degrees and over a decade of farming experience, found it impossible to get fresh food for our children. There were no supermarkets, no farmer's markets, no available community garden plots. The only food is a corner store, a liquor store, and a McDonald's. This system of segregation uh, is termed by the government a food desert. To us, there's nothing natural about apartheid. Um, So we call it what it is. It's food apartheid. It comes out of a legacy of redlining and housing discrimination, of divestment from communities of color, and has resulted in the situation today where if you're white, you're four times as likely to have a supermarket 
on your block than if you're black. You're more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, and other diet-related illnesses. Not because you don't know how to eat, but because there you know, is a scarcity of affordable, culturally appropriate quality food um, that's accessible. Oh, wow. Yo, Tam, that last part, I mean, all of it's just so powerful, like calling it food apartheid, how redlining and divestment has and continues to have so much impact on so much is so dizzying. Right. But I especially love how she emphasizes that it's not that Black folk don't know how to eat. It's the sheer scarcity of what's available. Exactly. And Mike, you and I talk about this a lot. And by now, everyone knows I'm born and bred American. And you immigrated here when you were around seven or eight, right? Yeah. But the reality is that neither of us grew up in a predominantly Black and or underserved community. I grew up in an apartment complex that was called, quote unquote, projects, but it actually wasn't a typical projects because it was an apartment complex built by the community college in a white neighborhood. You know, Tam, I never knew that. I just remember you saying you grew up in the blue roofs, but I never knew that those were like, so it was basically like, was it housing for the staff of the community college? Do you know? No, it was a project firm. So because they made some mistakes with like constructing the complex, like for an example, some of the doors were on backwards. The city designated it low income housing. Hmm, Interesting. But the best part about it for me, like growing up, is that you had to have children to live there. So I grew up with people from all different backgrounds. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, I knew that part of it for sure. I just, that, the part about it being constructed as a complex for the community college, I had no idea. Yeah. Cool. They messed up. <laughs> they basically messed for up. Benefit. <laughs> yeah. But there were several grocery stores in my neighborhood. And when my mom saved enough money to buy a house, she refused to move across the 8 freeway. And in San Diego, San Diego is, is extremely segregated. And about 90% of the black community live across the 8 freeway. And it's crazy because the older I've gotten and the more I've lived, you know, outside of just California, we've moved around all over. It's the entire country is segregated. You know what I mean? It's, that's how it is. There's pockets of places where there might be a little bit of integration or like immigrants might live together in the same neighborhoods, you know, and, but it is an extremely segregated country. So, it is. And yeah. you don't realize that because I remember when we were in college, I would say I was from San Diego and people would be like, oh, I didn't know there were any black people in San Diego. Yeah. I'm like, uh, Yeah. <laughs> It's true. So like I said, San Diego is very segregated and my mom refused to live across eight. And I don't, I don't want that to come off the wrong way. My mother is from the South. She loves her people and her culture, but she wanted to provide me and my siblings with more opportunity. Yeah, I know. I get it. I really do. And sadly, I mean, your mom knew that. I feel like my parents knew that, that basically to provide a better opportunity, like with schools, you know, school districts and, and access to good food. It means oftentimes in this country living in a white neighborhood or at least not in a predominantly black neighborhood. And it's funny because like the real the first real black neighborhood I lived in was when we moved to New York City in the late 90s. And it's crazy to think like that. You know, like we had. Yeah, that was just a whole thing. Wait, do you, <laughs> but, um, wait, you, know, do you think that living in New York was your first black neighborhood? Because what about D.C.? But that was on college campus. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Thank you for that. That was that was the, you're right. Actually, there was at Howard. Right. Right. But it's like, yeah, that was college. And it was like a certain you know, you're at a university and it's actually kind of shady or kind of more interesting, I guess. But so your your day-to-day interactions aren't really with the neighborhood because you're right. right. Now it was definitely, I mean, that's changed now too, right? It's completely changed, but it was definitely not gentrified at the time. And it was, yeah. I remember like the, the first year I was there, we had to live off campus. Like they had so many people apply to the school because of, uh, what's the show? Not the Cosby show, uh, Different World. Like as an incoming freshman, I was put into the upperclassmen housing. That right. was off, uh, on Euclid Street. But you don't really, you're kind of interacting just with the college students, the people that you were going to interact with. So I was definitely aware of it, but it it didn't really seep in because I didn't know the rest of the area so well, you know? Yeah, and that's Um, really true because when you're on a college campus, you're basically just on the college campus. You're not really 
like you said, integrating with the community. No, you're not, you know, and even those in the city, it's like, you've got your college hangouts, you're hanging out with your college friends. So really my real first experience as an adult was in New York city. And it was, I just remember when we were looking in neighborhoods, right. (laughs) We had no idea that they were so pricey and this was like in the nineties and it's just so funny. Like we, I'll never forget this one moment. Do you remember this when the realtor finally snapped at us? Like he was taking us all over places, and we were like, <laughs> we were on the upper west side of this apartment, and we we're like, mm, it's kind of small or whatever. <laughs> like, I didn't know, contemplating on whether or not we we're going to take it, and then he told us the price. I don't remember what it was, but we we're like, wait, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then, and then this fool took us to Spanish Harlem and it's, I don't know if Spanish Harlem is just Washington Heights. I don't know. I have to look that up because nobody says that anymore. But anyways. Yeah. I was wondering that the folks were all hanging out. Yeah. Nobody says that anymore. I've never heard that term, but um, there were dudes hanging out and people in bodegas. People knew those were. <laughs> yeah. Um, bodegas are corner stores for those who aren't in New York or not familiar with the term. So the corner store is a bodega. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. But it was all like sort of dotted with liquor stores and church fronts. And we were just like, mm, no, thanks. Exactly. <laughs> That. <laughs> then he suggested Brooklyn. Right. But we ended up in Brooklyn Heights. Do you remember this? We were together. Like, we were in Brooklyn yeah. Heights and it was Court Street. And it was like, what is this ghetto? Why is it so <laughs> dirty? Like it was, and that was, I don't know, it was, it's crazy. Even then we were like, no thanks. And then he was telling us the rents were high anyways. So we couldn't afford it. But eventually we ended up in Crown Heights, which yeah. kind of brings me full circle about food deserts. And we were on Park Place between Franklin and Bedford. Shout out to Crown Heights. And I'm actually not too far from there now. Back then, it was a predominantly Caribbean black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you remember like, what grocery stores were there? There were like little, you know, Caribbean spots everywhere. There's like a Chinese restaurant. There's all kinds of Caribbean restaurants. There was um, that place where we used store. to get beef pie and cocoa bread all the time. That little corner yeah. store. Yeah, right. <laughs> like you said, there was that one grocery store across the street, but they barely had anything yeah, no, else. No, it wasn't on the street. It was like when you came out of the subway station, it was on Franklin and Eastern Parkway, like a block away. There was that but one. Remember the one? In- but remember they opened that yeah, other one, like-, like across the street from us? We're on Park Place and Bedford, right? And if you go on Bedford across the street, there was that mm-hmm. little store they tried to open, but there was barely anything on the shelves. Oh yeah. Oh girl, I forgot about that place. But yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, do you remember that? That was insane. But the one that I was thinking of was the one that was on Franklin Eastern Parkway and it was like a fake grocery store. Yeah, they that's didn't really right. have much. Yeah, remember that? And like, I can't remember the guy's name anymore, but we remember we were real friendly with him, one of the owners. It was crazy because now that same store, they've expanded it. It's like an organic, it, it's so ridiculous because Crown Heights has become so gentrified and so expensive. It's like so many people have been, you know, pushed out. Do you know if it's the same owners? Yeah. It is, because I saw, I can't, what was his name again? You remember? You know who I'm talking about, remember? I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. But um, it is. Because I've, I've seen him and it's crazy. I don't, obviously, I don't really go there that much because we've got our own grocery stores here. But um, I've actually never been there since it's been new. But I was shocked to see it. And especially when I drive by sometimes on Eastern Parkway, mm-hmm. it's that big. Like it takes up the whole corner. Like it's Bedford onto Eastern Parkway. And it's like all organic and it looks all well thought out and laid out. I'm sorry, I keep going on. But I say all that to say that it really feels like it takes gentrification to get decent choices in food in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's really sad. I was reading this article about the whole food effect in the Amsterdam News, which essentially was describing how Whole Foods increases a neighborhood's market value. And actually the same is true for Trader Joe's despite the lower price tag. According to the 2017 Zillow study, the market value of homes located near Whole Foods and or Trader Joe's grew 148% from 1997 to 2014. Whole Foods and Trader Joe's are not simply piggybacking off of already hot neighborhoods, wrote Savanya Goodell. She goes on to say, rather, it appears both chains are either incredibly smart about finding neighborhoods on the verge of gentrifying or the opening of either location positively impacts home values. 
Yeah, I don't know about them being incredibly smart about finding anything like neighborhoods on the verge of gentrifying. I think that um, what happens is that I've seen it happen so many times now. I've been here so long in New York is that a certain type of person starts to move into a neighborhood and then they go back to jobs and they start talking about that. And then the more people move into that neighborhood, the other feels more comfortable. And we always talk about even people like myself. And I don't feel like I'm a gentrifier. Like I, we've been in, in and around this neighborhood forever. Right. But you go back to work and start talking about these things. And then it brings the type of people that, like, oh, she's pretty safe. That's interesting. And then they come and see the neighborhood. And I think that has like this really sort of negative effect where people start moving to these neighborhoods. Neg- negative effect for people who are already there and get priced out. And yeah. then sometimes, you know, white folks, they want something bigger and they can't afford it where they, where they can. They'll try to get the closest place to it. So Exactly. So what you're saying, Meg, actually happens all over the place. I know you know about this because you have a friend that lives in an area I'm about to mention, Harlem. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2017, Whole Foods opened a new location at 125th and Lenox Avenue. Just so y'all know, this neighborhood is like the blackest neighborhood you can get in uh, New York. It's blackity black, meaning that historically Harlem is known for its black renaissance. It has a proud history of black artists, intellectuals, and entrepreneurs. But this area is rapidly gentrifying and with the erasure of its communities that would inevitably start with this new hub of high quality but expensive food. As Angela Helm wrote for The Root following its opening, she stated, We also deserve quick access to five types of rice milk for our lactose intolerance, wild-caught fish, and organic cereal for our kids. But, and this is a big but, at what cost? That's a great question, but at what cost, right? How do we change the whole food effect when we hear stories like this one in Texas? Dallas City Councilman Casey Thomas has been advocating for more grocery stores in Texas for decades. He'd like to see 10 to 20 more grocery stores built. Listen to this. For two years, Thomas has been trying to get a store to open in this space in southern Dallas. It's been empty for a decade. The city offered any grocery chain $3 million to take it over. No one was interested. When you have as many options as as they have, uh, this has not been their choice. Some of it has been... Even if you offer them $3 million? $3 million. I talked to a grocery industry expert who says it is hard for a big supermarket to make a profit in a food desert. That's because residents generally have less money to spend, and it can cost grocers more for security and loss prevention. Do you agree with the reasons that the grocery store chains give for not being able to do business in your neighborhoods here? Based on their model, I accept that. I don't believe that, I don't believe that to be true from the standpoint of you can make money. You can make money because people will buy groceries. Yeah, that was a little depressing. But, you know, further on in this piece, we actually hear from Darren Babcock of Benton Farms, who is the founder of a small community farm. And he founded the farm with the idea of creating a cafe and a community center with a focus on sustainable farming and healthy eating. And he created this for Southeast Dallas and um, around Southern Dallas. So these are areas that are surrounded by food deserts. Anyhow, what he was saying is, and I think this could be the alternative and what maybe Angela Helm was addressing and what we've been sort of talking about offline between us is to avoid the whole food effect. How do we do it? Right. And like what he was saying basically was that the alternative to grocery stores is that if he was given the $3 million that the councilman had offered to these other chains and grocery stores, he could actually open community farms and centers like Benton Farms across $7 and thereby affecting, having a much bigger impact. Right. So 
that's really hopeful. And I think that's our lemonade out of lemons. Definitely. And he's totally on the right track because in some of the research I did for this show, it stated that a grocery store only affects people in the one mile radius. So if you're able to build these farms to help the community, that's more beneficial than a grocery store. Oh, you're right. And that's why the Dallas city councilman was saying he'd like to see 10 or 20 more. Exactly. Whereas that, that would be presumably $3 million per store, right? Because that, that was just for one store that he was offering it. And where right. Babcock is saying, give me that $3 million. Wow. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Lemonade out of lemons. Lemonade right? out of lemons. And also, Tam, the skill that you keep pointing out is that with this community farm, teaching people to farm, you know, and it's the same idea as when we first started the show with the Soul Fire Farm, is right. teaching people to farm and actually grow their food. You're way more invested in that. So I think you, you are. Know. Yeah, because people are more invested in their food. Honestly, when I used to live in New York with my roommates, Annie, she would actually have herbs that she would grow right outside of the window. And she would make this uh, mint tea from the herbs that she grew. And it was so good. And I just appreciated it more just because she grew it herself. Well, how's that for lemonades out of lemons? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's all we have for y'all today. Yeah, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoy talking. Do us a favor. And if you like what you heard, spread the word. Woo! And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Food With Politics and subscribe to our podcast. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.